Hello, Green Antler Waterfowl listeners. My name is Sarah Fowler, and I am your host. I uh, want to say thank you to all listeners out there. This is Season 3, Episode 25. Uh, Our previous episode was the inaugural meeting of the re-election for me, and also the um, meeting of TASA's Council 2022 to 2026. We're going to do a bit of a library book episode today. <clears throat> I'm back at the Green Antler and not uh, not like last time we recorded in the municipal office. And uh, so the book that I'm going to read is Small World Big Ideas, Eco-Activists for Change. Uh... Peace Pilgrim, longtime activist and former Jain monk Satish Kumar has been inspiring change for 50 years. He is an ecologist, editor emeritus of Resurrection and Ecologist, the flagship magazine of the Green Movement, and, co- and founder of the pioneering Green University, Schumacher College in Devon. So the... Where I wanted to start, there's a lot of really good uh, speakers or speech writers in this um, book. Um, on the first page it says, The hallmark of being of a good activist is being able to embrace the deep human and spiritual values of respect, appreciation, kindness, and humility. Without these values, an activist will not be able to touch the hearts and minds of others. And the contents page is Introduction 9, Satish Kumar 14, Fanny Armstrong 36, Bob Brown 50, Helen Bainan 64, Deepak Chopra 80, Tim Flannery 92, Jane Goodall 104, Roger Hallam 124, Polly Higgins 134, Caroline Lucas 146, Bill McNibbin, 158, Carlo Petrini, 170, Fernanda Shiva, 184, and Greta Thunberg, 198, with resurgence on 206 and acknowledgments on 207. So I don't know how long we'll have until I go pick up my kids at school in half an hour. So I'm going to start with 104. Of... Small World Big Ideas, Jane Goodall, scientist and conservationist, UK. Born in London, 1934, Dame Jane Goodall is an anthropologist, ethnologist, conservationist, and the recipient of multiple awards, including the UN Messenger of Peace. She is best known for her 45 years of study of study of social and family interactions of chimpanzees in Gombe Stream National Park, Tanzania. And she still works extensively on conservation and animal welfare issues. In 1977, Jane founded the Jane Goodall Institute, which, in addition to conservation, promotes sustainable livelihoods in local communities. The Jane Goodall Institute has created a worldwide network of young people who are committed to taking care of their human community as well as the animals and their environment. Core values include a recognition that all living things, people, animals, and the environment are interconnected. 
that every individual has the ability to make a positive difference and that flexibility and open-mindedness are essential to enable us to respond to a changing world. Page 106. There are four individuals who have inspired me in my activism and in my life. The first one is my amazing mother. She supported all my childhood passions for animals. Lots of little girls and little boys too love animals, but they don't always have such an understanding mother as I had. When my mother found I had taken earthworms to bed with me, she didn't get angry or throw them out. She just said quietly that they would die without the earth. So I helped her to take them back to the garden. A first vivid memory is when I was four and a half years old and we went on a holiday to the country. Here I was, this animal-loving little girl from the city where there are cats, dogs, pigeons, and sparrows, and not much else. Now I was meeting cows, pigs, horses, sheep, face-to-face, all grazing out in the fields. One of my jobs was to help collect the hen's eggs. I was getting them out of the nest boxes and putting them in my little basket, wondering where on a hen was there a hole big enough for an egg to come out. I looked and looked and couldn't see one. I was asking everybody, where does the egg come out? But no one answered me to my satisfaction. (coughs) So I decided I would have to find out for myself. I saw a hen climbing into the hen house where the nest boxes were and I thought, ah, she's going to lay an egg. And I followed her. Well, that was a mistake. She flew out, probably terrified. So that wasn't a good place to wait. I then went into an empty hen house and waited and finally at dusk was following my mother seeing Falling, my mother sees this excited little girl rushing towards the house all covered in straw. And instead of being angry with me for making them all worried because she knew, because no one knew where I was, she saw my shining eyes and sat down to hear the wonderful story of how a hen legs an egg. So there you have the making of a little scientist. Curiosity. Asking questions, if you don't find the answer straight away, you think you will find out for yourself. You make a mistake, you don't give up, and you learn patience. And my mother was helping to helping the development of this little scientist. Then I found the books about Tarzan and the apes, and of course I fell in love with this glorious lord of the jungle. And what did he do? He married that other Jane. I was really jealous, and I was sure I would have made a better mate for Tarzan. So, when I was 11 years old, I decided that when I grew up, I would go to Africa, live with animals, and write books about them. Not surprisingly, everybody laughed at me. It was the Second World War period, and Africa was still thought of as the dark continent very far away. No 747s going back and forth with tourists. We didn't know much about this dark continent. There were rumors of poisoned arrows and cannibals, but also all those wonderful animals. The biggest problem for all of all for me was that I was the wrong sex. 
Back then, girls didn't do that sort of thing. But the one person who never laughed at me was my mother. She would say, Jane, if you really want something and you work hard and take advantage of opportunity and never give up, you will find a way to do what you want to do. When I left school, my friends went to university, but we couldn't afford it. And in those days, you couldn't get a scholarship unless you were good in a foreign language, and I wasn't. It was my mother who said, well, do a secretarial course, and then maybe you can get a job in Africa. That'll take you closer to what you want to do. So I did. I was working in London, and I got a letter from an old school friend inviting me to Kenya for a holiday. Yes, opportunity, but still no money. So I gave up my job and went home where I could live for free, working in a hotel close by and saved up. Eventually, I had saved enough money for my return fare to Africa by boat. I was 23 when, in 1957, I waved goodbye to my family, my friends, and my country and set off on this amazing adventure. For me, every day is an adventure because we never know what we're going to learn, who we're going to meet, or what opportunities will come our way. But but that time, it was a real adventure, setting off on my own to go and stay with a friend. Soon after I arrived, I got a job in Nairobi. There I heard about Louis Leakey. He was another powerful inspiration. I went to see him in the Natural History Museum, and he asked me, all kinds of questions about the animals there. Because I had followed my mother's advice and I had continued to read books about Africa and animals, and because I had spent hours in the Natural History Museum in London, I was able to answer many of his questions. I was ready for this opportunity. He gave me a job working as his assistant, and he let me go with him to a place that is now very famous. Old Dubai gorge on the Serengeti Plains. In those days, Olduvai wasn't famous at all because no human fossils had been found there, only the fossilized remains of various animals. And all the animals were there back then, the giraffe, the zebra, the rhinos, and the lions. I was allowed out on the plains after a hard day of digging for fossils. Sometimes we met a rhino. Once we met a young male lion. He was fully grown with little wisps of hair on his shoulders, and he was curious. He had never seen anything like me before, and although it was a bit scary, it was very exciting. I think that's when Louis Leakey decided he would offer me the opportunity to go to Gombe in Tanganyika, western Tanzania today, and learn not only about any old animal, but about the animal more like us than any other. Of course, I said yes, but it wasn't easy. It took a year before I could start on this amazing experience because, first of all, who was going to give money? I had no university degree. I had just come straight from secondary school. I was English, I, and I was a girl. But eventually, a wealthy American business said to Lewis, Okay, here's money for six months. We'll see how this young lady does. The second problem. The Tanganyika authorities refused to take responsibility for a young girl arriving on her own. But in the end, they said, Oh, all right, if she has a companion. So who volunteered to come? That same amazing mother. She packed up in England. She could come for four months. 
It was a shoestring of an expedition. We had one ex-army tent that leaked. No fancy sewn-in ground sheets. But just a piece of canvas on the ground and the sides of the tent rolled up to let the air in. But this also let in the spiders and scorpions and snakes. None of which my mother liked very much. But she never complained. And we had some tin cans to eat from and a tin plate and a tin cup and... That was about it. I mean, how amazing. How many mothers would do that? She did two things for me. One, in those days when I first began, the chimpanzees who were very conservative, who had never seen a white ape before, took one look at me and vanished into the undergrowth. I would get back depressed because I knew if... I didn't see something exciting before the money ran out that that would be the end. No more study. I would have let Louis Leakey down. But there was Mum in the evening, and I never got back until it was just about dark. She would share a simple supper and would console me and point out what I had learned. She'd point out that I was learning the foods that chimpanzees were eating, that I saw how they made a platform or nest of branches in the trees each night. I was developing an understanding of their social structure where they move around, sometimes in small groups, sometimes singingly, sometimes small groups meeting up into larger gatherings, continually coming and going within this community. Thus, she really boosted my morale and released me from my disappointment of not actually being with chimpanzees. Two... She started a clinic. She wasn't a doctor or a nurse, but she cared about people, and her brother was a doctor, so we had all these simple medications like aspirins and bandages, Epsom salts, and saline drips. She made some amazing cures. She became known as the White Witch Doctor because she practiced white medicine. Thus, she established for me an amazing relationship with all the local people, and that has stood me in good stead ever since. The third of the individuals who inspired me to be an animal activist was a chimpanzee called David Greybeard. It was he who featured in my breakthrough observation. I can never forget that day in 1960, about five months into the study, when I was walking back through the forest. It had been raining, I was wet and cold, and I suddenly saw a dark shape huddled over a termite mound. I stopped and peered with my binoculars. I saw a hand reach out and pick a piece of grass, and I could see a chimpanzee was using this as a tool, pushing it down into the termite mound, into the passage of the termites, waiting for a moment, pulling it out, picking the termites off with his lips, and then I saw him pick a leafy twig and strip the leaves. Why was this so exciting? This chimpanzee, the one I'd named David Greybeard for his white beard, was using a tool. He was making a tool by modifying an object. And this was exciting because at that time it was thought that using and making tools differentiated us, the humans, more than anything else from the rest of the animal kingdom. We were known as Man the Tool Maker. And when I sent a telegram to Louis Leakey, the reply came back. Now we must redefine man, 
redefine tool, or accept chimpanzees as human. That observation of David Graybeard using tools was a red, red, a real red letter day. So, Graybeard was the first chimpanzee I came to know. Not only did he demonstrate tool using and the fact that chimpanzees hunt for prey and share the carcass, he also was he was also the first to begin to lose his fear of me. When I appeared in a group, he sat there calmly, look, calmly looking at me. The others with big eyes saw him looking at me and said, well, she's not so frightened af- frightening after all. So really, Greybeard helped me to move through the doorway into the magical world, the world of the wild chimpanzees. And wasn't I lucky to be the first person to explore that world in depth. Looking back now over more than 50 years from when I first began in Gombe National Park in Tanzania, that's amazing. That's the longest unbroken study of any group of wild animals in the world, and I'm still there, and I'm still learning. Looking over this half century of knowledge and exploration, what do I find that's really fascinating? There is so much to be fascinated by, but above all, I'm amazed to know how chimpanzees are very much like humans. Biologically, the DNA of chimps and humans differs by only just over 1%. The blood of a chimpanzee is so like ours that you could have a blood transfusion if you match the blood group. You could not take blood from a gorilla. Chimpanzees are biologically more like us than gorillas. The immune system is so familiar that they can catch or be infected to all known human contagious diseases. Another fascinating fact relates to the brain. The brain of a chimpanzee is so much like ours. The main difference is in its size. It shouldn't surprise us then that they are capable of intellectual abilities that we used to think unique to us. One by one, many of these attributes that were supposed to mark humans as separate and unique have been broken down through observation of chimpanzees and other animals. Chimpanzees have a long childhood. The mother has her first baby when she's 12 or 13. Then she has one child every five or six years. That's a long period during which the child is riding on the mother's back sleeping with her at night and suckling. This long childhood is an important for chimpanzees as it is for humans because they, like us, have a lot to learn. They learn things like tool-using behavior. There are eight different ways chimpanzees use objects as tools at Gombe alone. In every place in Africa where chimpanzees are being studied, they use different objects for different purposes. Chimps are like humans because the young ones learn by observing the adults and imitating them and practicing. That's one definition of human culture, behavior that's passed from one generation to the next through observational learning. So we can say that chimpanzees have their own primitive cultures. We can discover the extent of chimpanzee intelligence in captive situations where chimpanzees can be rewarded It's like sending children to school and encouraging them to learn. Chimpanzees can learn American Sign Language, ASL. 
they can learn about 400 of the signs of ASL and they can use them to communicate with each other, although they prefer to use their own postures and gestures. It was fascinating for me to watch the development of the relationship between the mother and her offspring, to see how during these five years, when the child is totally dependent for transport, food, and learning, the bonds get stronger and stronger, and then when a new baby is born, the older child doesn't leave. It remains with the mother, and so the bonds get even stronger, and the bonds develop between brothers and sisters too. It was a shock to me when I first realized that chimpanzees, like us, had a dark side to their nature. In interactions between neighboring groups and communities, in particular, there can be violent behaviors. Groups of males patrolling the boundary of their territory may give chase if they see strangers from a neighboring group, and they may attack, leaving victims to die of wounds inflicted. But we can take comfort from the fact that they are also show love and compassion. They can show true altruism. Imagine you, you're with me and we're walking through a forest. It's lovely and dim and green under the canopy with little specks of sunlight dancing down. And we're following a male sa- chimp called Satan. He's not very wicked, but when he was a kid, he stole a manuscript from my mother who come on a visit. We had to bribe him with a banana to get it back. But that was a long but that was long ago and now here he is, twenty three years old, in his prime, and suddenly he hears sounds of an excited group of chimpanzees feeding in the trees ahead. Imagine about twenty chimps making sounds. So now Satan is all excited, his hair bristles, he hurries along the trail. He comes to a big tree filled with ripe fruit and feeding chimpanzees, and he rushes up. There's a bunch of red figs, delicious. He goes straight there. Well, there's already a younger male, about two years younger than Satan, feeding there. But Satan is dominant, <clears throat> threatens that younger male and away, and begins to feed. The young male starts screaming. There's a special call they give. It's a call for help. An unknown to Satan, that young male's older brother is feeding higher up on a, the tree. And now, hearing his kid brother in trouble, he comes swinging down. The two brothers attack Satan together. Now Satan screams. To my amazement, a very old female whose teeth were worn to the gums, who's shriveled with age, who weighs about half of each of these battling males who's probably closer to 60 years old and who has been feeding quietly in the canopy comes swinging down. She drops her frail self onto these three males and with her little fist starts hitting at the two brothers. They are so surprised and mildly threaten her while Satan gets away and that is Satan's old mother, Sprout. When a mother dies, her older child may care for an infant. If the infant is over three years old, there is a good chance of survival if there is an older brother or sister to look after that child. One such infant was Mel. He was three and a half years old when his mother died, and he had no older brother or sister of his own. He was alone in the world. To our amazement, a 12-year-old adolescent male named Spindle adopted him.
waited for him in travel, let little Mel ride on his back. If Mel begged, if Mel begged for food, Spindle would share. If Mel crept up when Spindle made his nest at night, Spindle would draw him close and they would sleep curled up together. He would even rescue little Mel if he got into got too close to some aroused males competing for dominance. If an infant gets in the way as they charge across the ground, they may actually pick it up and throw it away. Oh, if an infant gets in the way as they charged across the ground, they may actually pick it up and throw it. It seems they lose their inhibitions. A mother's job is to keep the child away. Spindle took on that job as well and saved Mel's life. So there they are, these chimpanzees with their similarities to humans and their intellectual abilities so like ours. Their postures and gestures, kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting one another on the back, shaking a fist, laughing, tickling each other. They do these things in the same kind of way as we do. These amazing beings have really and truly helped me to blur the line once thought to be so sharp, dividing us from the rest of the animal kingdom. They force us to admit that we're humans, that we humans are not the only beings on the planet with personalities, minds, and feelings. This gives us cause to show new respect, not only for the chimpanzees, but also for the other animals with which we share our planet. Back in 1960, when I began, it was very different. I was told I'd done everything wrong. I should have numbered the chimps and naming them wasn't scientific. I couldn't talk about chimpanzees having personalities or minds or feelings because those were unique to humans. But fortunately, I thought back to a teacher I had as a child, a teacher who taught me that animals absolutely do have personalities and minds and feelings. And that teacher was my fourth individual my dog Rusty, who, like my mother and Louis Leakey and David Graybeard, inspired me to become an activist. What I learned from him helped me to have the courage of my convictions in spite of those erudite professors who didn't like the way I did things. So, it's a bit sad to find that chimpanzees, who really have been like ambassadors to, from the animal kingdom to us, are vanishing in the wild. They're becoming extinct like so many other animals around the world today. They're disappearing because of the destruction of their habitat and ever-growing human populations. They're disappearing because they are being hunted for food, not to feed hungry people, but because of the commercial hunting of wild animals, which is facilitated by the intrusion of new roads created by logging companies. The bushmeat trade supplies all kinds of wildlife, smoked, cut up, and offered for sale in markets to the rich who have a cultural preference for it. It is often exported to Europe and the U.S. Even the chimpanzees in Gombe are endangered. When I flew over the area in late 1980s and looked down from a small plane, I absolutely shocked to see the habitat outside the park, just its tiny just 30 square miles of beautiful forest with crystal clear streams running down to the water of Lake Tanganyika. All the trees around the park are gone, had gone, and this is steep hilly country, so the trees went. There was terrible erosion, and a thin layer of topsoil was being washed down into the lake. 
there were more people living on this landscape than could support it than it could support the question that came into my mind as i flew over was how can we even try to protect these famous chimpanzees if the people living around them are struggling to survive and that's what led me to work in this area to improve the lives of people living in the villages around the gombe stream national park we started by employing local tanzanians to go into the villages, listen to the elders, and ask them what they felt would improve their lives, what would make things better for them. The villagers were concerned about health and education of their children, so we began to work in these programs. Then we gradually introduced the other elements of the program, farming methods most sustainable for the steep eroded land, ways... Oh, Ways of reclaiming overused farmland so that within two years it can be productive again. Working with groups of women, giving them opportunities to take out tiny loans. We also provide scholarships for girls to stay in school beyond the primary level. We provide information about family planning. We work with women because all around the world it's been shown that as women's education improves, family size drops. And we work to ensure, pardon me, that the projects that result from these tiny loans from the microcredit banks are environmentally sustainable. One of the things we've done in these villages is to introduce our global youth program, Roots and Shoots. This began in Tanzania in 1991 and is now in more than 130 countries around the world involving thousands of empowered youth and people in projects to benefit their communities, animals, and the environment we all share. There are members from preschool, first grade, second grade, and right up to past university and we're in refugee camps and prisons and retirement homes and so forth. So how did this begin? Well, it began because when I realized what was going on with chimpanzees, how they were vanishing right across Africa, I realized I had to stop living this lovely dream life, working in the forest, learning about these amazing beings, doing some research, writing and lecturing, I had to stop and go out and talk about what was going on and raise awareness. And as I was traveling around in Africa, I began to find out what was actually going on there. I began to have a sense of the degradation of the environment and the problems faced by the people. The deforestation leading to soil erosion, leading to desertification, leading to loss of biodiversity, leading to huge problems for the people living there who began to live increasingly in a vicious cycle of poverty and overpopulation, hunger and disease. I began to realize that this environment is being destroyed in two ways. One, by very poor people who destroy the environment simply because they have to find some way to feed their families. They are forced to cut down trees to grow crops or to keep goats, which destroy the environment. 
because they have no alternatives. They know perfectly well that because of their activities, they're going to change what may start off as lush forest into a desert, but what else can they do? And then two, you have to under you have the unsustainable lifestyles of the elite communities who take far more than their fair share of non-renewable natural resources. So I decided that I must start traveling across Africa, going around in Europe and the US and in Asia and speaking about all the different ways in which we are harming the planet. We're poisoning the air, the water and the land. We have children being born into environments where the air is where the air they breathe and the water they drink, the food they eat is actually making them sick. We are burning up fossil fuels in a greedy way, adding to the greenhouse gases that are leading to climate change. Water is a huge problem. The surface water is shrinking, the water tables are dropping, the great aquifers are becoming endangered, the pollution is washing down with the rain into the streams, the rivers, the lakes, and the sea. The fish that we eat are becoming contaminated as well as being overfished. We're eating more and more meat, which means that animals are being farmed not only in an inhumane way, but in intensive factory farms to keep them alive they must routinely be fed antibiotics the bacteria are building up resistance and so superbugs are being created the intensive farms are the second biggest polluters and creators of greenhouse gases on the planet and as more people around the planet get more money and eat more meat what is going to happen The American biologist E.O. Wilson has commented that if the entire population of the planet today were to attain the standard of living of the average American or European, we would need three new planets. But we don't have one new planet. We only have this one. So what's gone wrong? How is it that we've destroyed our only home? Do you think it's because we've lost something called wisdom? The wisdom of the indigenous people who would gather together to make a major decision and ask how the decision they make today will affect people seven generations ahead? And how do we make decisions today on how this will affect me or my family now? How this will affect the next shareholders meeting three months ahead how this will affect my next political campaign. These are the kinds of criteria we're using to base our decisions on today. Is there a disconnect between this very clever brain of ours and the human heart, the seat of love and compassion? If we don't have a grounding in this very humane part of us, we create a very dangerous animal indeed. The animal that can go out and make weapons of mass destruction and kill others far away by pressing a button and destroying the environment to the detriment of the children of the future. So I began traveling around the world. I met many young people and so many of them seemed to have lost hope for the future. They were depressed. They were apathetic. Some of them were angry. When I talked to them, 
they more or less said the same thing. We feel this way because we feel you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. We have compromised the future of our young people today. We've got three, I've got three little grandchildren. I think how we've harmed the planet since I was their age and I feel a kind of desperation. But it's not right to think that there's nothing we can do about it. There's a lot we can do about it. This is what led to the Roots and Shoots program. Imagine an acorn, a little roots come out, a little shoots come out, and how small that looks. But there is so much energy, so much life force in that seed that those little roots can push their way through boulders to reach the water, and the little shoot can work its way through crevices in a brick wall to reach the sun until the boulder and the brick walls, all the problems we've inflicted on the planet, are dispersed. The most important message every one of us makes a difference every day. If we would spend a little bit of time thinking about the consequences of the choices we make each day, what we buy, what we wear, what we eat, there's so much we can do. Collectively, that will start to make bigger changes as more people understand that their own life does make a difference. I met so many people who think about the problems of the world and feel helpless, feel there's nothing they can do as one person, and so do nothing. But as people begin to work together, making these small correct decisions, thinking about what they can do to reduce their own ecological footprint, we start to see the changes we must have. And kids get this. They really do. What do the Roots and Shoots groups do? They decide for themselves. The program is youth-driven, and even quite small children have a good idea about what they want to do. So in a group, they will sit around and talk about the local problems, decide which ones they care about, and choose projects they can take action on. And one of and one kind of project will help animals, including domestic animals, one kind of project will help people, and one kind of project will help the environment. Running throughout is a theme of learning to live in peace and harmony and to break down the walls that we build between different between people of different nations, different cultures, different religions, religions and between us and the natural world. Kofi Annan made me a messenger of peace because I explained roots and shoots to him and said, wherever we go, we are sowing seeds of global peace. Everywhere I go, people ask me, Dr. Jane, do you really have hope for the future? You've written a book called Reasons for Hope. You give talks called Reasons for Hope. You've seen the forest disappearing in Africa You've seen the chimpanzees decrease in numbers, and you've seen terrible examples of inhumanity. Do you really have hope for the future? Well, my four reasons for hope are very simple, probably very naive, but they work for me. The first one is these young people, the Roots and Shoots groups and other similar youth around the planet. Some of the Roots and Shoots groups are doing extraordinary things and sometimes it requires a lot of courage. 
These young people are my source of hope. Then there are groups of people who work with work for three, four, five, six years on a nature restoration project, like removing the exotic plants from wetlands or from a piece of prairie to restore the environment to how it once was. These groups are my great response, great reasons for hope. The determination, the enthusiasm, the energy, the commitment, and the courage of all people, of people all around the world, when they know what the problems are and they are empowered to take action. Where does my energy come from? It comes from these amazing young people. My next reason for hope is the resilience of nature. I witness the trees at Gombe that grow out of seemingly dead tree stumps. I was in the redwoods and saw how these trees won't die. Even if you cut down a giant tree and you leave the stump, in time the roots will put up new saplings and eventually they will make a circle around the stump and join together to make another giant tree. They won't die. They will restore themselves. The animals on the brink of extinction can be given a second chance. Think of the California condor. There were 12 of them left at one time, and and through the passionate dedication of some biologists who felt they could not allow this amazing creature to vanish, now there are more than 200 condors flying in the skies above four states in the west coast of the U.S., Another reason for hope is the indomitable human spirit, and everywhere, in all walks of life, there are people tackling seemingly impossible things. They can be people like Nelson Mandela, who spent 27 years in prison with the amazing ability to forgive so that he led his nation out of the evil regime of apartheid without a blood path. People like Mohammed Yunus, who designated the Grameen Bank when all the other banks told him it was impossible, who designed, who designed the Grameen Bank when all the other big banks told him it was impossible and has now done probably more to help the poorest of the poor than anybody else. And then there are people living all around us who ain't may just pass in the street and never know we've walked past a person who's had to overcome seemingly impossible odds. Physical disabilities, social problems, fleeing from a country, arriving with no money, no word of English, no friends, and somehow making a life for themselves and their families. Then I think about the human brain. The human brain attached to the human heart is indeed an extraordinary mechanism and we are now beginning to create technology that will help businesses to be more environmentally friendly we're using our brains to work out things like carbon trading carbon credits we're using our brains to work out how each one of us can walk through life with a smaller ecological footprint all of these things together give me hope for the future There is an enormous amount of hope which lies within each one of us. We all have to do our bit. It isn't just going to happen. Everywhere in the world there are problems. But whenever there are problems, 
I find a group of caring, passionate, dedicated, courageous people who are working with little or no money, who are risking their health, sometimes risking their lives, to try to put those problems right. And it's this that gives me the greatest hope. Further reading and useful websites. A Spiritual Journey by Jane Goodall, 2021. Reasons for Hope by Jane Goodall, 2024. www.rootsandshoots.org www.janegoodall.org Wonderful. So, I'll stop that one there. Okay, I'm going to read uh, page 185 of the same book, Small World, Big Ideas, Eco-Activists for Change by uh, Satish Kumar. But this chapter is about Vananda Shiva, eco-feminist and environmentalist from India. Born in India... In 1952, Vananda Shiva is a key figure in the anti-globalization movement, best known for her support of the wisdom and traditional practices of indigenous Indian peoples. In 1982, she found the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Ecology, which led to the creation of Navandia, a woman-centered movement to protect the diversity and integrity of living resources in India and to promote organic farming and fair trade. In 2004, she started Bija Vidya Paith, an international college for sustainable living. Vandana Shiva's organization Navdanya supports a number of initiatives and campaigns to help preserve the cultural and farming traditions of India. The Earth University, Baija Vidya Peeth, was founded by Vanandan, Vandanya with Satish Kumar following the 9-11 attacks in New York in 2001 and is run in partnership with the UK's Sumatra College. Students at Baija Vidyapith explore and practice the art and science of sustainability based on ecological principles at Navdanya's Organic Biodiversity and Conservation Farm. I started my life dreaming about being a physicist with Einstein as my aspiration. I obtained my PhD from the University of Western Ontario on hidden variables and quantum theory, but the seeds of activism had been sown in me by the Chipko movement and the tree that grew from those seeds started to overshadow the plant. That was my first passion, figuring out how nature molds from the eye and mind of a quantum physicist. I was born in the Himalayas and grew up there. My father was a conservator of forests in days before roads, so we would watch 
or go on horseback through the forest of oak and rhododendron, devdar and pine. Before I left to do my PhD in Canada, I wanted to visit my favorite forests and streams. However, the forest had been replaced by apple orchards. The stream was a trickle. I felt a personal loss, and if a, as if a part of me had disappeared. While talking about the disappearance of forests in a little roadside Dahaba tea shop, the conservation brought up Chipko, the new movement where women said they would hug the trees, Chipko, to prevent them from being felled. From that day onwards, I became a student at two universities, the University in Canada for my studies in Foundations of Quantum Theory and Philosophy of Science, and the University of Chipko for my apprenticeship in activism to protect our biodiversity, our forests, our rivers, our ecosystems. Since Chipko was inspired by the legacy of Gandhi, I also got my training in nonviolent, peaceful, but very determined resistance. In 1981, Chipko was successful in stopping the logging of the forest in a catchment of the Ganja above 10,000, no, 1,000 meters. The following year, the Ministry of Environment asked me to look at the impact of limestone mining in Dune Valley. In those days, I was doing interdisciplinary research on science policy at the Indian Institute of Management in Bangalore. Dune Valley is where I was born, where my parents lived, so I jumped at the opportunity. We did a study based on participatory research, research carried out by communities impacted by an activity. While the women of the villages might not have known the hydrology of karst limestone, they did know where their springs were and when the spring disappeared. They knew which mine triggered which landslide and washed away which village. In matters of life, living and survival, local communities, especially women, are the experts. Our study led to the closure of the mines. The Supreme Court ruled that if commerce undermines life, then commerce must stop because life has to carry on and under article 21 of the constitution the state must guarantee the right to life to every citizen my mother offered me her cow shed to start the research foundation for science technology and ecology f r f s t e and i left bangalore to become a full-time activist with research and knowledge as a key to activism. In the Cartesian Baconian paradigm, knowledge is linked to the power of the powerful. Those who control capital and through capital appropriate and privatize our natural wealth and our heritage. I decided that through the work of the Research Foundation, 
we would link knowledge to the power of the excluded. Show that they have knowledge and their knowledge should count. In 1984, India had two major disasters. The first disaster was Punjab, the land of the Green Revolution. Extremists was exploding and 30,000 people were killed. Finally, the army was called in and they entered the Golden Temple to capture Brindranval. Brindranval, the leader of the extremist movement. The vicious cycle of violence took the life of Indian's Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. The second disaster was Bhopal, where a Union Carbide pesticide plant leaked a deadly gas, killing 3,000 on the night of the 2nd of December. 30,000 have died since then, and hundreds of thousands are crippled for life. By the end of 1984, my mind was spinning. I kept asking why agriculture had become like war and decided to do research to find out. The outcome was my book, The Violence of the Green Revolution, which I wrote for the United Nations University. I realized that industrial chemical agriculture was like war because it came from war. Fertilizers came from explosives, factories, pesticides were war chemicals. And I committed myself to creating a nonviolent agriculture for peace. In 1987, because of my book on the Green Revolution, I was invited to a conference on biotechnology where the same companies that had brought us war chemicals, which they transformed into agrochemicals, now wanted to genetically modify and own the seed through patents. I realized we had to defend the integrity, diversity, and freedom of life from these new threats. Taking inspiration from Gandhi's spinning wheel, I started to save seeds and a movement that grew to be Navdanya. Navdanya is a woman-centered movement and network of seed keepers and organic producers spread across 16 states in India. It has been working towards its goal to promote peace and equality harmony, justice, and sustainability for 25 years now. We have a vision that all humans have a fundamental right to ecological, economic, and political security to have to the protection and defense of their resources, their livelihood and production, and consumption patterns shaped by people through their participation. Biodiversity provides the basis of livelihoods of the marginalized majority of women, peasants, tribals, fisher folk. Biodiversity offers the potential to overcome poverty, hunger, and powerlessness. Biodiversity-based food production provides climate resilience and food and nutritional security. Through biodiversity, we must envision improving the productivity and outcomes of rural communities, thus combining the conservation of nature with the eradication of poverty, destitution, and misery. 
Our 25 years of successful implementation is testimony that Praxis is possible. In 25 years, Navdanya has helped set up 65 community seed banks across the country, trained over 500,000 farmers in seed sovereignty, self-sufficiency, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture over the past two decades, and helped set up the largest direct marketing, fair trade organic network in the country. Navdanya has also set up a learning center, Baija Vidyapith School of the Seed, on its biodiversity, conservation, and organic farm in Dune Valley, Uttarakhand, North India. Thus, from training, research, advocacy to find livelihood solutions and actual praxis, Navdanya has been a pioneer in engendering food systems, water sovereignty, seed sovereignty, and land and forest sovereignty in the country so that everyone in India can live with dignity, equality, and justice. The Baija Vidyapith, which we also call the Earth University, was started because Satish Kumar was very keen to see a Schumacher-like institute at Navdanya. Some of the best thinkers and activists of our time have come and taught at the Baija Vidyapith. They include Edward Goldsmith, co-founder of The Ecologist, Muhammad Idris, founder of Third World Network, Fritjof Capra, who wrote The Tao of Physics, Anita and Gordon Roddick, who started The Body Shop, Masanobu Fukuoka, who wrote The One Straw Revolution, Tiwoldi Ejaziber, the Environment Minister of Ethiopia, Francis Moore Lapin, who wrote Diet for a Small Planet, Arundhati Roy, Sunderlal and Vimla Bahonguna, Venerable Samhong Rimposh, the former Prime Minister of Tibet, government in exile, and of course, dear Satish, who is with us every year to teach Gandhi and globalization. Globalization is what has shaped the last 25 years of my activism. Joining with other activists such as Doug Tompkins, Jerry Mander, Maud Barlow, Mike Ritchie, Tony Clark, Andrew Kimbrell, Sarah Loran, and Martin Kaur, we formed the International Forum on Globalization. When the World Trade Organization, WTO, met in Seattle, we mobilized citizens of the world to say no to corporate rule, which is commodifying everything. We declared our world is not for sale. Corporations such as Monsanto, the biggest seed company, had hoped to patent seeds and indigenous knowledge. We call this biropiracy. We have fought and won cases of biropiracy for crops such as neem, basmati rice, and wheat.
Our campaigns against biopiracy began in 1994 when we filed a legal opposition against USDA and WR Grace patent, patent number 436257B1, on the fungicidal properties of neem on the European Patent Office, EPO, in Munich, Germany, along with the RFSTE, the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movement, and Magda Alvoet, former Green Member of the European Parliament, also supported the challenge. The patent was revoked in 2000 and reconfirmed and revoked in its entirety in May 2005. In 1996, Navdanya started a campaign against India's Basmati Rice Biopiracy and Patent on Life by the U.S. company Rice Tech Inc., patent number 5663484, and on 14 August 2001 achieved another victory when the U.S. state's Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO, revoked large sections of the patent. These included, one, the genetic title of the Rice Tech patent, which earlier referred to Basmati Rice Lines, Two, the sweeping and false claims of rice tech having invented traits of rice seed and plants, including plant height, grain length, and aroma, which are characteristics found in our traditional basmati varieties. And three, claims to general methods of breeding, which also constituted piracy of traditional breeding carried out by farmers and our scientists of the 20 origin claims, only three narrow ones survived. Navdanya's third victory on the intellectual property rights came front front intellectual property rights front came in October 2004 when EPO revoked Monsanto's patent on the Indian variety of wheat Napal. On 21 May 2003, Monsanto had been assigned a patent on wheat by the EPO EPO. EP 0445929B1 under the simple title Plants. On the 27th of January 2004, the RFSTE, along with Greenpeace and Baharkishnak Samj BKS, filed a petition at the EPO challenging the patents rights given to Monsanto on Nepal. The patent was revoked on October 2004, and it once again established the fact that the patents on biodiversity, indigenous knowledge, and resources are based on piracy, biopiracy, and there is an urgent need to ban patents on life and life-giving organisms, including biodiversity, genes, and cell lines. In the past 25 years, many changes have taken place. India's patent laws have been amended. A Biodiversity Act and a Protection on Plant Varieties and Farmers' Rights Act have been passed. The Traditional Knowledge Digital Library has been set up. From Gandhi, I have learned that effective activism combines resistance with constructive work. We resist GMO seed monopolies and patents through the Seed Satyagraha, a nonviolent, non-cooperation 
with laws that claim that seed is a corporate invention and can be the property of Monsanto. We have been effective in preventing a seed law that would undermine farmers' freedom to save, exchange, and breed seeds. I am now working towards a global, global campaign on seed sovereignty. The last 20 years have been have seen a very rapid erosion of seed diversity and seed sovereignty, while control over seed has been concentrated into a very small number of giant corporations. At the Plant Genetic Resource Conference in Leipzig in 1995, organized by the UN, it was reported that 75% of all agricultural biodiversity had disappeared because of the introduction of modern varieties, which are always cultivated as monocultures. Since then, the erosion has accelerated. The introduction of the WTO, Trade-Related Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS, T-R-I-P-S, agreement has accelerated the spread of genetically engineered seed, which can be patented and for which royalties can be collected. Navdanya was started in response to the introduction of patents on seeds in the TIPS of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, the predecessor of the WTO, about which a Monsanto representative later stated, In drafting these agreements, we were the patent diagnostician physician all the patient diagnostician and patient and physician all at one corporations defined a problem and for them the problem was farmers saving seeds they offered a solution the solution was to introduce patents intellectual property rights on seeds thereby making it illegal for farmers to save seeds as a result acreage under gmo or gm corn soya canola and cotton has increased dramatically. Besides displacing and destroying diversity, patented GMO seeds are also undermining seed sovereignty. Across the world, new seed laws are being introduced that enforce compulsory registration of seed, thus making it impossible for small farmers to grow their own diversity and forcing them into dependency on giant seed corporations. Corporations are also patenting climate-resistant seeds evolved by farmers, thus robbing farmers of using their own seeds and knowledge for climate adaptation. Another threat to seed and seed sovereignty is genetic contamination. India has lost its cotton seed because of the contamination of B- from Bt cotton. Cotton seed genetically modified with pest-resistant Bt, Bacillus, Thuringiensis. Canada has lost its canola seed because of contamination from Roundup Ready canola. Mexico has lost its corn because of contamination from Bt cotton. After contamination, biotech seed corporations sue farmers with patent infringement cases, which is what happened in the case of the Canadian farmer Percy Smizer. That is why more than 80 groups came together and filed a case to prevent Monsanto from suing farmers whose seed had been contaminated. 
As farmers' seed supply is eroded, the farmers become dependent on patented GMO seed. The result is debt. India, the home of cotton, has lost its cottonseed diversity and cottonseed sovereignty. 95% of cottonseed is now Monsanto's BT cotton. The debt trap created by being forced to buy seed every year with royalty payments has pushed hundreds of thousands of farmers to suicide. And the 250,000 farmer suicides, the majority are in the cotton belts. Even as the disappearance of biodiversity and seed sovereignty creates a major crisis for agriculture and food security, corporations are pushing governments to use public money to destroy the public seed supply and replace it with unreliable, non-renewable patented seeds which must be bought every year. We have started Fibers of Freedom to make cotton once again the fiber of freedom that Gandhi spun by creating community seed banks, teaming farmers in organic farming, and helping create fair and just markets for beautiful handcrafted fabric. The organic movement grown by Navadanya from seed to table has shown that we can grow more food and nutrition by conserving biodiversity and building living soil. Our activism shows that you can protect nature and also provide for human needs. Corporate control over the Earth's resources and people's basic needs is on the one hand destroying nature and on the other hand denying people the right to work and to food and water. And this control is institutionalized by false claims of hunger productivity and efficiency. It has been falsely claimed that GMOs are necessary to produce more food. Our report, The GMO Emperor Has No Clothes, shows that not only there not only is there a failure to yield, there is a failure to control weeds and pests. In fact, GMOs have created super weeds and super pests. GMOs are therefore a threat to food security. Just as there is technological illusion about chemical industrial farming and genetic engineering, there are economic illusions around constructs such as growth. Globalization as deregulated commerce was supposed to create a new age of prosperity. Instead, it has given us a deep economic crisis that has affected all parts of the world. The dominant economic model based on limitless growth on a limited planet is leading to an overshoot of the human use of the Earth's resources. This is leading to an ecological catastrophe. It is also leading to an intense and violent resource grab of the Earth's shrinking resource land, the resource base, land, biodiversity, water, by the rich and powerful without any adjustment from the old resource-intensive limitless growth paradigm to the new reality. The only outcome for the poor will be ecological scarcity in the short term with deepening poverty and deprivation. In the long run, it means the extinction of our species. As climate catastrophe and extinction of other species make the planet inhabitable for humans, failure to make an ecological adjustment to planetary limits and ecological justice is a threat to human survival. The greed economy that was pushed at Rio Plus 20 could well become the biggest resource grab in human history. 
with corporations appropriating the planet's green wealth and biodiversity to make green oil for biofuel, energy, plastics, chemicals, everything that the petrochemical era based on fossil fuels gave us. Movements worldwide have started to say no to the green economy of the 1%. But an ecological adjustment is possible and is happening. This ecological adjustment involves seeing ourselves as part of a fragile ecological web, not outside or above it, and somehow immune from the ecological consequences of our actions. Ecological adjustment implies that we see ourselves as members of the Earth's community, sharing its resources equitably with all species and with the human community. Ecological adjustment requires an end to resource grab and the privatization of our land, biodiversity and seeds, water and atmosphere. It requires the recovery of the commons and the creation of earth democracy. The dominant economic world-based economic model based on resource monopolies and the role of the oligarchy oligarchy is a conflict not just for the ecological limits of the planet but also with the principles of democracy and governance by the people of the people for the people. The adjustment from the oligarchy will further strangle democracy and crush civil liberties and people's freedom of choice. Bharti Mittal's statement that politics should not interfere with the economy reflects the mindset of the oligarchy that democracy can be done away with. This anti-democratic adjustment includes laws like homeland security in the U.S. and multiple security laws in India. Calls for a democratic adjustment from below are being witnessed worldwide in the rise of nonviolent protests from the Arab Spring to the American Autumn of the Occupy movement and the Russian winter challenging the hijack of elections and electoral democracy. We face multiple crises, the ecological crisis including climate, biodiversity and water, the economic crisis of deepening poverty and emerging poverty, and the social and political crisis of democracy. These crises are interconnected, as is the solution. As I look ahead into the future, I see my activism guided by a paradigm of Earth democracy based on living democracy, living economies, and living culture. To create living democracies, we have to widen our embrace to include all life on Earth. The Earth community, we have to move from representation to participation. To create living economies, we have to move from growth to well-being of the Earth and human communities. We have to move from consumerism to conservation. We have to move from privatizing the Earth's resources to sharing the commons. To create living cultures, we have to move from greed to caring. At the heart of this transition is care for the earth. That is why I'm part of the emerging movement on the rights of Mother Earth. On the rights of the earth are based human rights and rights of future generations. The earth is calling us to be earth activists and earth citizens. If we listen, we can have a future further reading and useful websites. 
The Violence of the Green Revolution by Vandana Shiva, 1991. Stolen Harvest. The Hijacking of the Global Food Supply by Vandana Shiva, 1999. Earth Democracy, Justice, Sustainability, and Peace by Vandana Shiva, 2005. Manifestos on the Future of Food and Seed. Edited by Vandana Shiva, 2005. Soil Not Oil, Climate Change, Peak Oil, and Food Insecurity by Vandana Shiva, 2009. Making Peace with the Earth, Beyond Land Wars and Food Wars by Vandana Shiva, 2012. www.navdanya.org wonderful so i'm gonna keep going this is page 199 it's greta thunberg climate activist greta thunberg was born in 2003 in august 2018 she started a school strike that became a movement called fridays for future which has inspired school strikes and climate action in more than 150 countries involving millions of students Thunberg has spoken at climate rallies across the globe, as well as World Economic Forum in Davos, the U.S. Congress, and the United Nations. In 2019, she was named Times Person of the Year. Thunberg is vegan and doesn't fly in order to live a low-carbon life. Speech to the House of Parliament in the U.K. on the 23rd of April, 2019. My name is Greta Thunberg. I'm 16 years old. I come from Sweden. I speak on behalf of future generations. I know many of you don't want to listen to us. You say we are just children, but we're only repeating the message of the United Climate Science. Many of you appear concerned that we are wasting valuable lesson time, but I assure you we will go back to school the moment you start listening to science and give us a future. Is that really too much to ask? In the year 2030, I will be 26 years old. My little sister, Beta, will be 23, just like many of your own children or grandchildren. This is a great age, we have been told, when you have all of your life ahead of you, but I'm not so sure it will be that great for us. I was fortunate to be born in a time and place where everyone told us to dream big. I could become whatever I wanted to. I could live wherever I wanted to. People like me had everything we needed and more. Things our grandparents could not even dream of. We had everything we could ever wish for and yet now we may have nothing. Now we probably don't have even have a future anymore. Because that future was sold so that a small number of people could make an unimaginable amounts of money. It was stolen from us every time you said that the sky was the limit and that you only live once. You lied to us. You gave us false hope. You told us that the future was something to look forward to. And the saddest thing is that most children are not even aware of the fate that awaits us. We will not understand it until it's too late. And yet we are the lucky ones. Those who will be affected the hardest are already suffering the consequences, but their voices are not heard. Is my microphone on? Can you hear me? 
Around the year 2030, 10 years, 252 days, and 10 hours away from now, we will be in a position where we are set off an irreversible chain reaction beyond human control that will most likely lead us to end our civilization as we know it. That is unless, in that time, permanent and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society have taken place, including a reduction of CO2 emissions by at least 50%. And please note that these calculations are depending on inventions that have not yet been invented at scale. Inventions are supposed to clear the atmosphere of astronomical amounts of carbon dioxide. Furthermore, these calculations do not include unforeseen tipping points and feedback loops like the extremely powerful methane gas escaping from rapidly thawing Arctic permafrost. Nor do these scientific calculations include already locked in warming hidden by toxic air pollution, nor the aspect of equality, equity, or climate justice, clearly stated throughout the Paris Agreement, which is absolutely necessary to make work make it work on a global scale. We must also bear in mind that these are just calculations, estimations. That means that these points of no return may occur a bit sooner or later than 2030. No one one can know for sure. We can, however, be certain that they will occur approximately in these timeframes because these calculations are not opinions or wild guesses. These projections are backed up by scientific facts concluded by all nations through the IPCC. Nearly every single major national scientific body around the world unreservedly supports the work and findings of the IPCC. Did you hear what I just said? Is my English okay? Is the microphone on? Because I'm beginning to wonder. During the last six months, I've traveled around Europe for hundreds of hours in trains, electric cars, and buses, repeating these climate-changing words over and over again. No, these life-changing words over and over again. But no one seems to be talking about it, and nothing has changed. In fact, the emissions are still rising. When I have been traveling around to speak in different countries, I'm always offered help to write about the specific climate policies in specific countries. But that is not really necessary. Because the basic problem is the same everywhere. The basic problem is that basically nothing is being done to halt or even slow climate and ecological breakdown, despite all the beautiful words and promises. The UK is, however, very special. Not only for its mind-blowing historical carbon debt, but also for its current very creative carbon accounting. In 1990, the UK has achieved a 37% reduction. Since 1990, the UK has achieved a 37% reduction of its terrestrial territorial CO2 emissions according to the Global Carbon Project. And that does sound very impressive. But these numbers do not include emissions, emissions from aviation, shipping, and those associated with imports and exports. If these numbers were included, the reduction is around 10% since 1990, or an average of 0.4% per year, according to Tyndall Manchester. And the main reason for this reduction is not a consequence of climate policies, but rather the 2001 EU Directive on Air Quality that essentially forced the UK to close down its very old and extremely dirty coal power plants and replace them with less dirty gas power stations. 
and switching from one disastrous energy source to a slightly less disastrous one will, of course, result in a lowering of emissions. But perhaps the most dangerous misconception about the climate crisis is that we have to lower our emissions because that is far from enough. Our emissions have to stop if we are to stay below 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius of warming. The lowering of emissions is of course necessary, but it is only the beginning of a fast process that must lead to a stop within a couple of decades or less. And by stop, I mean net zero. And then quickly on to negative figures. That rules out most of today's politics. The fact that we are speaking of lowering instead of stopping emissions is perhaps the greatest force behind the continuing business as usual. The UK's active current support active current support the new exploitation of fossil fuels, for example, the UK shale gas fracking industry, the expansion of the North Sea oil and gas fields, the expansion of airports as well as the planning of permission for a brand new coal mine is beyond absurd. This ongoing irresponsible behavior will no doubt be remembered in history as one of the greatest failures of humankind. People always tell me and the other millions of school strikers that we should be proud of ourselves for what we have accomplished, but the only thing that we need to look at is the emissions curve, and I'm sorry, but it's still rising. The curve is the only thing we should look at. Every time we make a decision, we should ask ourselves, how will this decision affect that curve? We should no longer measure wealth and success in the graph that shows economic growth, but in the curve that shows the emissions of greenhouse gases. We should no longer only ask, have we got enough money to go through with this, but also, have we got enough of a carbon budget to spare to go through with this? That should and must become the center of our new currency. Many people say that we don't have any solutions to the climate crisis, and they're right, because how could we? How do you solve the greatest crisis that humanity has ever faced? How do you solve a war? How do you solve going to the moon for the first time? How do you solve inventing new inventions? The climate crisis is both the easiest and the hardest issue we have ever faced. The easiest because we know what we must do. We must stop the emissions of greenhouse gases. The hardest because our current economics are still totally dependent on burning fossil fuels and thereby destroying ecosystems in order to create everlasting economic growth. So exactly how do we solve that, you ask us, the school children striking for the climate? And we say, no one knows for sure, but we have to stop burning fossil fuels and restore nature and many other things that we may not have quite figured out yet. Then you say, that's not an answer. So we say, we have to start treating the crisis like a crisis and act as if we don't have all the solutions. That's still not an answer, you say. Then we start talking about circular economy and rewilding nature and the need for a just transition. Then you don't understand what we are talking about. We say that all these solutions needed are not known to anyone, and therefore we must unite behind the science and find them together along the way. But you do not listen to that, because those answers are for solving a crisis that most of you don't even fully understand, or you don't want to understand. 
You don't listen to the science because you are only interested in solutions that will enable you to carry on like before. Like now, those answers don't exist anymore because you do not act in time. Avoiding climate breakdown will require cathedral thinking. We must lay the foundation while we may not know exactly how to build the ceiling. Sometimes we just simply have to find the way, find a way. The moment we decide to fulfill something, we can do anything. And I'm sure that the moment we start behaving as if we are in an emergency, we can avoid climate and ecological catastrophe. Humans are very adaptable. We can still fix this, but the opportunity to do so will not last for long. We must start today. We have no more excuses. We children are not sacrificing our education and our childhood for you to tell us what you consider is politically possible in the society that you have created. We have not taken to the streets for you to take selfies with us and tell us that you really admire what we're doing. We children are doing this to wake the adults up. We children are doing this for you to put your differences aside and start acting as you would in a crisis. We children are doing this because we want our hope and dreams back. My hope, I hope my microphone was on. I hope you could all hear me. Can you hear me? Houses of Parliament, London, 42319 is reproduced from No One Is Too Small To Make a Difference by Greta Thunberg, copyright 2018, used by permission of Penguin Books, the imprint of Penguin Publishing Company, a division of Penguin Random House, LLC, all rights reserved. Further reading and useful websites. Our House is on Fire, Scenes of a Family and a Planet in Crisis by Melina and Beta, Eman and Svanti and Greta Thunberg. No One is Too Small to Make a Difference by Greta Thunberg, 2018. <sighs> How much time do I have left? Okay. The Resurgence Trust is an educational charity and publisher of Resurgence and Ecologist magazine. The trust promotes ecological sustainability, social justice, ethical living and spiritual values and brings together a community of like-minded individuals who all believe that a more sustainable way of life is possible. Resurgence and Ecologist, published six times a year, is the UK's only independent publication that focuses on reverential ecology and the arts. Resurgence, which merged with The Ecologist in 2020, no, 2012, has been edited by Satish Kumar for almost 40 years. Becoming a member of the Resurgence Trust connects you to the things that really matter, earth, art, and spirit. Visit www.resurgence.org for more details. Okay. I will read the acknowledgements, but... I didn't read anything from the author either, so that's maybe in the front. Let's just check that out. Introduction, Satish Kumar, yeah, 14. 
Every acorn is a potential oak, and if the right conditions of soil, water, sunshine are provided, something as small as an acorn will become a mighty oak tree. In a similar manner, every human being, however insignificant he or she may think himself or herself to be, is a potential activist, provided the right conditions are met to develop the qualities they will need of courage, commitment, and selfless service. Just as an oak offers shade for the weary traveler, the branches for a bird's nest or a beam for a farm barn, an activist cares for the earth, serves the poor, liberates the oppressed, and achieves great heights of both the imagination and self-realization. A true activist is not a rare hero, nor an ego-driven dictator, nor a self-conscious superstar, nor a self-centered celebrity, nor a power maniac manager, power manic manager, but a humble host to humanity, a servant of the earth and an ever-vigilant conscience for all of all people, all the people. Such an activist is a mindful is as mindful of the process and purpose as life of life as she or he is aware of the goals. There is no conflict between the means and the ends here. There is complete harmony between what is to be done and how it is to be done. True activism, therefore, is about big vision and right action rather than about outcome, achievements, and unrealistic targets. A real activist lives by example. Anyone who demands do as I say and not as I do is not a good activist. Integrity between word and deed is the essential quality of inspirational activism. Mahatma Gandhi once asked, Why you call upon people to do something? They follow you in the millions. What is the key to your success? Gandhi reputedly replied, I have never asked anyone to do anything that I would not have tried and tested in my own life. We have to practice what we preach. In other words, we have to be the change we wish to see in the world. One living example is more effective than a million words. Congruence between preaching and practice is a prerequisite for purposeful activism. We are all potential activists. We can show the world what a good life can be lived without exploitation, subjugation, or dominance of others, or of natural resources. We can show that a simple, wholesome, and equitable life can be joyful and good. We can show that happiness doesn't flow from material goods or the amount of money in our bank accounts. Rather, happiness flows from the quality of the life we live and the kind of relationships we have with our families, with our communities, and with the natural world. This is bottom-up activism. We don't have to wait for the Messiah, a Messiah. The end of the apartheid in South Africa, the establishment of civil rights in the U.S., the dismantling of the Berlin Wall, the disintegration of the former Soviet Empire, and many other transformations occurred in the history of humanity solely because millions of people decided to take action at grassroots levels. At grassroots level, they refuse to accept the unjust order of the day. Eco-activism is the greatest and most important example of people taking personal responsibility to participate in the process of the great transformation required for a just, sustainable, regenerative, and resilient future for the earth and her people. 
the environmental activism to address the climate emergency has become the biggest and all-encompassing human struggle of our time. Greta Thunberg, Extinction Rebellion, and many other leading scientists and activists included in this book have inspired hundreds and of thousands of people of all ages and all over the world to come out in the streets and be counted. This radical and peaceful eco-activism has helped to create mass awareness among people at large, including politicians and business leaders to develop new policies, new technologies, and more importantly, new attitudes towards nature. Now, more than ever, increasing numbers of people are realizing that there is no separation between humans and nature. Humans are nature too. So what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. This rising new vision gives me great hope for the future. It is possible that humanity will rise to the challenge of climate catastrophe and collectively act to create a regenerative culture so that people and planet can live in harmony with each other. We can look after our precious planet Earth for millions of years to come. In the Sanskrit language, there is a word, sadhana which means a long spiritual and practical practice and training through action and engagement. There is no shortcut to the development of qualities that lead to activism. It is a gradual process. An activist needs to be fearless, willing to suffer hardships and prepared to accept the consequences of adhering to his or her ideals. If you take the great example of true activists like Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Aung San Suu Kyi, and Mother Teresa, they all suffered hardships. Therefore, the most important quality of a true activist is to live by one's ideals, whatever the consequences. Such activists are often criticized, ridiculed, and ignored, but they do not give up. Qualities such as resilience, endurance, and integrity are the key to their successful activism. No activist can act by himself or herself. We all have to work with others. We have to recognize good qualities in others and avoid getting bogged down in and preoccupied with negative behaviors or attitudes of other people. The hallmark of a good activist is being able to embrace deep human and spiritual values of respect, appreciation, kindness, and humility. Without these values, an activist will not be able to touch the hearts and minds of others. Without these values, the activist an activist will not be able to touch the hearts and minds of others. True activism is not about heroic headline-grabbing actions. It is about living and acting with integrity and without fear. Activism is, I believe, an inner calling. It is a journey, a journey of transformation, from subjugation to liberation, from falsehood to truth, from control to participation, from greed to gratitude. I have been privileged to know many great activists in my life. I was a student at Vinoba Bahavi who walked 10,000 miles for land reform. I met Bertrand Russell who went to prison for peace and Martin Luther King whose dream was to bring an end to racial discrimination. I continue to work with similar even if lesser known activists who have dedicated committed their lives to equally important and empowering ideals. And now I have the very great pleasure and honor 
of bringing together 13 of these inspiring activists, some very well known, some less so, in this book. These men and women represent thousands of others around the world who are the salt of the earth, kind of inspiration to humanity and our great hope for the future. This younger Greta Thunberg generation gives me great hope for the future when they become the leaders and run political, social, and commercial institutions, they will run them differently. The economy under their leadership will be in harmony with the natural world. When this new generation takes charge, humanity will not see nature merely as a resource for the economy. Nature will be recognized and respected as a source of life itself. Because of this, I hope, even at age 85, to be Because of this hope, I, even at age 85, am an optimist. To be an activist, one has to be an optimist. You cannot be a good activist if you are a pessimist. I am still an activist, a happy activist. I urge all activists, young and old, to be happy activists rather than miserable activists! Exclamation point. Act out of love rather than out of fear or anger or anxiety. Love of nature, love of our precious planet Earth, love of humanity, and love of future generations. I offer their stories as a gift to you, the reader, so that you may too discover your own inner activist and, just like them, become a source of change and serve this small world we all share with your own big ideas. So that is Satish Kumar, Editor Emeritus of Resurgence and Ecologist UK. Born in India in 1936, Satish Kumar is a peace activist, ecologist, Editor Emeritus of Resurgence and Ecologist, a flagship magazine of the Green Movement, founder of the pioneering Schumacher College, and member of the advisory board of Our Future Planet, an online community sharing ideas for change. A former Jane Monk... Satish decided he could achieve more back in the world and has been quietly setting the agenda for global change ever since. Starting with an 8,000 mile peace pilgrimage recounted in No Destination, Satish Kumar edits Resurgence and Ecologist magazine from his home and is its readership extends to 20 countries. Founded in 1966, Resurgence, as it's originally, as it was originally named, is through is thought to be the longest-running environmental magazine in Britain. The issues tackled when the magazine was first published were only just filtering through to the mainstream debate: endangered environment, renewable energy, and ecological economics. Resurgence merged with The Ecologist in 2012 and continues to publish cutting-edge articles from a diverse range of contributors. In 1991, Satish Kumar co-founded Schumacher College, a green university in South Devon. The college offers transformative learning for sustainable living grounded in an ecological and a holistic worldview. And that is the book that I got from the library with Satish Kumar, Franny Armstrong. 
It's a small world, big ideas is a rallying cry to save the planet. Lifelong campaigner Satish Kumar brings together an inspirational stories of 14 eco-activists from around the globe. The activists share their experiences revealing who or what made them want to change the world and how they have made their voices heard. The fascinating and moving stories in Small World Big Ideas urges each, urge each of us to become an eco-activist for change and show us how to make a difference in shaping a better and more compassionate world. So thank you to Satish Kumar and the other... Um, Franny Armstrong, Bob Brown, Helen Bayon, Dave Park Chopra, Tim Flanny, Flannery, Jane Goodall, Roger Hallam, Polly Higgins, Caroline Lucas, Bill McNiven, Carlo Peretti, Fanan, Vandana Shiva, and Greta Thunberg. And that's resurgence and acknowledgments. Thank you for listening to this Green Antler Waterfowl podcast. This is season three. Episode 24, maybe, maybe five, maybe three.